Good morning, church. Today's scripture comes from the book of Daniel, chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs. Now might, how mighty is his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. This has been the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everyone. It is such a privilege and a joy for me to preach this morning as we continue worshiping the Lord together. My name is David Duran, and I am the church planting resident here at Doxa Church. Doxa is a church that believes in planting healthy churches for the glory of God. And my family and I, we are so grateful that this church has come alongside us as we work towards planting a church in Massachusetts next year. We're super excited about that. It's been amazing to see the Lord provide for us in that, and we trust that, that, we trust that he's gonna continue to do that in this coming year. But I just wanna take a moment here at the beginning and say thank you to all of you who have supported our family, both financially and through your prayers uh, thus far as we've been at Doxa. I just want you to know that the Lord is using each of you in a mighty way in our lives, and he's using you for the good of his kingdom. And we are so grateful for your support. One of our prayer requests recently, and this is gonna continue to be a prayer request of ours, but we've been praying that God would develop a team of people who are committed to making disciples, who want to move to, to the south shore of Massachusetts with us and plant this church. So I just want to ask all of you, uh, please join my family and I in praying for this. Uh, And if you sense in any way that the Lord might be leading you in this, he might be leading you to move to Massachusetts to plant this church, please pull me aside one Sunday morning. Let's talk about what that might look like for you, what that might look like for your family. We are praying earnestly that the Lord would draw more people to this mission. And you just might be the answer to our prayers. Well, before we begin looking at our passage this morning, I want us to pray. And I'm gonna be the one who's praying out loud, but my hope and my prayer this week has been that as we spend time gathered together before the Lord, And and as we're praying and seeking him, that this would be something that you look forward to. My prayer is that you would look forward to just these couple of minutes that we're going to spend in prayer because it's something that we are all doing together as a church. There's so many wonderful things that are going on in the life of our church. There's so many wonderful ministries that you can be a part of and and things that you can take place in or uh, be a part of throughout the week. But Sunday morning... This is the only time where we can all be together. And the highlight of our life together as a church is when we gather together to worship the Lord. And then we scatter to make his glory and his gospel known. And church, we know that undergirding everything that we do 
has to be a posture of prayer. Docs of Church, it can't be stressed enough that we have to be a people of prayer, a people who desperately seek after the Lord in everything that we do. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who labor, labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. And we have to be people who earnestly pray to the Lord. So before we go any further together, let's take a moment and let's all pray to the Lord. Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, we praise you. We thank you that we can call you Father and that you, you hear us when we call to you. We give thanks and we offer our praise this morning because you always give us a reason to rejoice. We thank you that because of Christ, we can live as people who are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We thank you that Christ has dealt with our sin decisively and for all time through his death and resurrection. Lord, how we, we thank you for the cross, God. We pray that our hearts would never grow dull to the wonderful news of the gospel. May our eyes always light up and may our hearts come alive every time we talk about what Christ has done for us. Lord, we thank you that you haven't left us alone in this world, but you've, you've given your Holy Spirit to all who belong to you. God, we pray. We ask that you would make us into a holy people who reflect you and reflect your character in our community. Heavenly Father, right now I want to pray, we want to pray against the senseless acts of violence that have plagued our nation in recent weeks. God, we pray for the people in Boulder, Colorado, in Atlanta, Georgia, who have been affected by the shootings. God, we ask that you would heal the broken hearts of those who are hurting. We ask that you would mobilize your church in these areas to minister to people who are trying to make sense of everything that's happened. God, we pray that broken hearts would find healing in you. Father, it, it doesn't make sense to us, but we trust, we believe that you are going to use this tragedy for your glory. God, we also want to pray this morning for our leaders in government. We pray for our president, for our governor, for our senators, and for others who are in positions of leadership in our government. God, please give them wisdom as they lead. Let them lead in a way that allows your people to lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Lord, as we've seen in the book of Daniel, remind us that our hope isn't in a system of government, it isn't in a particular leader. God, our hope is in you. Our hope is in the everlasting kingdom. Father, while we worship you today, free from any fear or harm that might come to us because of our faith, we know that many of our brothers and sisters around the world, they don't have this luxury. They don't, they don't have what we have. So God, we lift up the persecuted church to you. All of us who profess Christ, we belong to the body of Christ. So we remember and pray for those who are facing persecution around the world. Father, now I want to pray specifically for us. 
God, I pray that you would give us the capacity to truly center our lives on you. Tear down the idols that are in our lives, the idols that fight for our affections. Destroy those things that would rob us of our joy in you. God, I pray that you would use your word to speak to us powerfully today. I pray that you'd use your word to shape us into the people that you desire us to be. God, I pray for your help. I pray that you would help me to speak things that are true, that are honoring to you, that are helpful for people here. God, I ask that you would give everyone here ears to hear or eyes to see and hearts to rejoice in the truth of your word. And I ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is Palm Sunday, and this is the first day of Holy Week as we lead up to Easter. And this week is really a time for us to remember the life of Christ as we build towards celebrating his resurrection on Easter Sunday. And by the way, I know Dale already mentioned it, but please make plans to be at the Good Friday service uh, up at Lakeside Baptist in North Myrtle. I was actually up there yesterday with a couple members of our worship team as they were practicing and preparing for that service. And I really think this is going to be a powerful service for all of us. So the prayer service is going to be at 5.30. The actual service is going to take place at 6.30. And again, this, I really believe this. This service is going to help all of us to have our hearts in the right place as we, as we prepare to go into that Easter weekend there. So if it's at all possible for you, please make plans to come and worship with us. Well, again, with it being Palm Sunday today, Traditionally, this has been the day where we remember Jesus' triumphant entry into Jerusalem. Some of you, you've probably attended a, a Palm Sunday service maybe in, your, in the past where everyone gets a palm branch as they, as they walk in the door. And you, you, you might remember how this story takes place. This is where Jesus comes riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and the people are there to, to welcome him with praise and those palm branches, and they, they spread them across the ground, symbolizing uh, victory and peace. And the people are there, and they're crying out. They're crying out to Jesus, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And many of those voices who are offering praise to God, those would be the same voices later that would be shouting for Jesus to be crucified. Now, I recognize that our passage this morning is from the book of Daniel, but with today being Palm Sunday, I can't help but notice some of the striking parallels between our passage in Daniel and some of those New Testament passages that tell the story of Jesus riding into Jerusalem. There's some connections there that say something powerful about the relationship between our words and the true condition of our hearts. That's just a little hint for you of where we're going this morning. Um, but first, what I want to do is let's do a quick recap of where we've been in the book of Daniel. It's important and it's good for us to do this from time to time so we have a good understanding of what's going on in the book. We don't just want to parachute in and, just, and begin. We want to make sure the framework is set and we understand what's been going on. So if you're visiting with us this morning or you haven't been with us in a couple of weeks, we have started preaching through the book of Daniel. And in a lot of ways, the book of Daniel seeks to answer this question. How can we, as Christians, how can we, as God's people, 
remain faithful to God in this world? How is it that we are able to remain committed to God in a foreign land? The Bible refers to us as sojourners and strangers in this life. We are passing through this world on our way to our true and eternal dwelling. Friends, this world is not our home. How quickly we can slip into a mindset where we believe that this life is all that there is. As Christians, we may never say that. Hopefully, we would never say that. But the way that we live would indicate that this world is truly all that we're living for. Throughout the book of Daniel, we are reminded and we're shown that it's possible for us to live in a way that brings praise and honor and glory to God in a foreign land. One example that we've already seen of that is in the story in Daniel 1 where Daniel and his friends, they resolved that they would not defile themselves with the king's food. And this decision that they made, it could have led to a terrible ending for these guys, maybe even resulting in their death, likely resulting in their death. But they were more concerned about remaining faithful to the Lord than the danger that might come their way. Two other important themes that we're going to see, they're going to continue to work themselves out in this book, is that God is sovereign over all human affairs and God is building his own kingdom. The interpretation of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream in Daniel chapter 2 reminds us God is setting up a kingdom that will never be destroyed. He's setting up a kingdom that will never be conquered. Remember, when we talk about God's kingdom, we are talking about his rule and his reign. There's, There's so much more that we could say about that, but the key point is that the rule and reign, the kingdom of God will stand forever. And as we continue going through this book, we're going to be reminded of that again and again. The kingdom of God is the only kingdom that's everlasting. All other kingdoms will fade away into history. All all rulers will fade into history, but the kingdom of God, it will stand. By the way, I just want to, I want to encourage you as we're going through the book of Daniel, um, read through it on your own. As we're studying as a church, read through this book on your own. Don't let the only time that you're in this book be on Sunday morning or maybe in community group. Um, Let's study it individually and together as we move forward in the coming weeks. We're going to glean so much more from God's Word if we truly immerse ourselves in it. So much for us to learn from this book. But I wanted, wanted to give you that quick recap. I wanted to set some frameworks for you in your mind so that hopefully you're going to have a better understanding of this book as we continue to move forward in it. So faith in exile, the sovereignty of God, the kingdom of God, each of those topics you're going to see, they're going to come up again and again as we go through the book of Daniel. Well, this morning, what I want us to do is I want to take a few minutes and we're going to finish up the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Really, this message is from Daniel 3.26 all the way through Daniel 4, verse 3. So what we're going to do, we're going to finish up that story from last week, and then we're going to shift our focus to what King Nebuchadnezzar has to say about all of this. So last week, if you'll remember, we looked at the story of King Nebuchadnezzar and the golden image that he had constructed. With great pomp and circumstance, Nebuchadnezzar commanded that all people and his empire bow down and worship this statue in a failure to comply with this 
this order would result in one being immediately bound and thrown into a fiery furnace. And this fun fact, that's actually my four-year-old daughter's favorite Bible story thus far. Of course, there were, you'll remember, there were three men, servants of the one true God, who refused to bow. And as, as if you remember, we're reminded in that story that God in his kindness, God in his mercy, he saw fit to deliver Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And that, that's where I want us to pick up. We're going to look at the three who've been delivered, and then we're going to shift our focus to King Nebuchadnezzar. So, two things I want us to notice about that story. And if you're unfamiliar with it, go back and read it after I, I talk about these two things. I, I want it to be, um, we, didn't look, we didn't read it, but I want it to be in your face and I want you to be thinking about it as you think through these themes. So obviously these two things are in addition to everything we looked at last week. And again, if you, if you missed the sermon last week, you need to go back and listen to it. It was, it was powerful and I, I know that it will impact each of us, especially if you haven't already listened to it. But here's what I want us to see this morning. First, God saved, he delivered the three from the furnace, but he wasn't required to. God saved, he delivered the three from the furnace, but he wasn't required to. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they demonstrated a profound amount of loyalty and, and trust and the one true God, but their level of faith, their level of faith did not mean that God was required to deliver them in the way that he did. We have to be careful that we don't view our relationship with God as a sort of patron-client relationship. This happens when we say or begin to live like, God, I'm gonna do this for you. I'm gonna do these things for you, but that means that you then have to do something for me. God, I'm going to demonstrate great faith and great trust in you in difficult situations. I'm not going to dishonor you. I'm not going to bring shame to you. I'm going to show you that I love you more than anything else. But that means that you have to deliver me from this situation in the way that I see fit. God, if I do this thing for you, then that means you must do this thing for me. The truth of the matter is that God does not answer to us that way whatsoever. Psalm 115.3 says, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Now, while God, he doesn't have to deliver us from trials, faithfulness, this is key, church, listen to this, faithfulness, faithfulness to him in the trial is far better than escaping the difficulty altogether. I promise you that if God had decided to let Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego die in that furnace, if he, had, if he had decided to let them die, they would have then been in the presence of God telling everybody that it was all worth it. We've got tons of examples from history of men and women who were martyred because they chose to remain faithful to the Lord when their faith was tested. There's a, a powerful example of a man named Jan Hus who was burned at the stake in 1415 for speaking out against the hypocrisy of the Roman Catholic Church. And it's reported that Huss walked to the stake singing a hymn before declaring, what I have taught with my lips, I now seal with my blood. Friends, God does not have to provide deliverance to us 
when we're facing a trial at work, and he doesn't have to provide deliverance in the way that we see fit. That's the key point. He doesn't have to provide deliverance to us when we're facing a trial at work, or we're struggling to find a spouse, or we're wrestling day after day with a strong-willed child. God's not required to deliver us from that situation the way that we see fit. He doesn't have to provide an escape for us when we're facing persecution. But if we will commit ourselves entirely to him, he's never going to disappoint us when we rely on him. He won't disappoint us. The result may not be what we expected. Oftentimes, it won't be what we expected. But he will not let us down. Remember that if we are in Christ, then we are children of God. And God has committed himself to us. Romans 8.32, maybe one of the most important verses in the Bible. Paul writes, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In our story, God chose to deliver the three from the furnace. But even if not, Even if they died in the fire, God had given them something greater than deliverance from death. He had given them himself. There in the fire, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were perfectly safe, regardless if they were kept from death or not. God delivered them. He saved them in that situation, but God was not required to. Second, a key thing I want us to see from that story is that uncertainties, uncertainties do not have to crush our confidence. Uncertainties do not have to crush our confidence. This point isn't explicitly clear in that, in 326 to 43, but we do see this when we look at the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and King Nebuchadnezzar in its entirety. If you have your Bible open, Uh, to to Daniel chapter 3. Look back at verses 16 to 18 in chapter 3. So this takes place right after the three have refused to bow to the golden image. They're being threatened with the furnace. And I'm going to read it for you. See if you catch what I'm saying about um, confidence and doubt and wrestling with that. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, We have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. The three here, they were were confident that God would deliver them in one way or another. They knew that regardless, regardless of what happened to them, they would be delivered from the hand of the king, but they were uncertain as to how God would deliver them. They were uncertain as to what exactly was going to happen to them. But even in their uncertainty, church, the three displayed supreme confidence in God and in his power. It's fair for me to say, I don't know the specific things that many of you are going through in this room today. I don't know. And in many cases, I have absolutely no idea. But I know that each of us, every single one of us, we face uncertainty all the time. 
It could be something as big as, I hope the diagnosis doesn't turn out to be cancer. It could be something like, man, I don't know if I'm going to have a job next week. We can all think of different things, uncertainties that we're challenged with, uncertainties that we're faced with, but uncertainties do not have to crush our confidence. The God who we serve, he is able to deliver us. And we know for certain that ultimately he will deliver us from all of our trials and all of our afflictions. One day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. That day is coming. We look forward to that day. Friends, most, most importantly, through faith in Christ, God has delivered us from the power of sin. Regardless of what happens, regardless of what we face in this life, our confidence, it flows from the cross. The gospel, the good news of what God has done through the person and work of Jesus Christ to reconcile people to himself, this good news, it brings confidence. Christians should be filled with a calm and quiet confidence in everything that we do. We should be a people who are filled with hope. No circumstance, no trial, no amount of suffering can take this away from us. The uncertainties in, in our lives, like the uncertainty of the three faced in the story, they shouldn't lead to a lack of confidence in God. Really, if you think about it, the, the uncertainties, the unknowns that we face, it just provides a greater opportunity for God to be glorified. For us to say, I don't know how this is gonna turn out exactly, but I know that God will deliver me in one way or the other. I know that God will provide for me. I know he will take care of me. I know he will see me through, regardless of what happens. Even if I lose my life, I'm confident that God will deliver me. So now, what I want us to do, let's, let's shift our focus a little bit to the other key character in the story, and that, of course, is King Nebuchadnezzar. Our story began with Nebuchadnezzar telling everyone to bow down to the golden image he had constructed, and it ends with the king issuing a different kind of decree. Let's look here at verse 28 of chapter 3 through verse 3 of chapter 4, and I'm going to read it for us. So if you have it in front of you, read along with me, but let's look at this. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies, rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I make a decree. Any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their house laid in ruins. For there is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Let's keep going into chapter four. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion endures from generation to generation. 
at first glance when we read this, it might look like this is the moment for King Nebuchadnezzar. This is the moment where he finally recognizes, he finally sees God for who he really is. I mean, we saw it, we read it. There's a lot of things to like about what the king is saying here. He's saying, blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He's saying that no one can speak against God. He's talking about signs and mighty wonders of the, and the everlasting kingdom of God. All that's there. Nebuchadnezzar is saying things that are factually true. But there's some serious problems here that we need to point out. There's some problems in what Nebuchadnezzar is saying. We need to, we need to notice what the king fails to actually say in his statements here. He acknowledges the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but he fails to recognize that this is his God as well. God was not the God of King Nebuchadnezzar, according to these statements. The king, he possessed a hardened heart under a superficial mask of spirituality. On the outside, maybe things looked good, and what he sang, it sounded good, but his heart was still hardened. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar was playing games. And as we look further into chapter four, this is gonna become more and more clear. Nebuchadnezzar makes this powerful decree, but there's no spiritual change in his life. He's just offering lip service to God at this point. He's, possessing, or he's, he's professing something with his mouth that he doesn't actually possess in his heart. He's celebrating God in what he says, but his heart is far from a posture of worship. This might look, when we read it, this might look like a genuine conversion. But the reality is of what is happening in Nebuchadnezzar, it's not necessarily indicative of a, of a conversion. In our story, Nebuchadnezzar has experienced a demonstration of God's power. There's no denying this. He watched three guys be delivered from a fiery furnace. There's, there's an angel, may even have been the pre-incarnate Christ and they're with him. He's witnessed something miraculous. And this, this has caused him to stop and think even offer some true statements about God. But he's not yet humbled himself before the Lord. In the same way that Nebuchadnezzar wanted all the world to bow to his statue, Nebuchadnezzar, he needs to bow in his heart to the one true God. And at this point in the life of the king, he has not yet laid down his pride. The idolatry that we've, that we've looked at previously, it is still continuing to flourish in his heart. All the king has done is he's added the one true God to his pantheon of false gods. Friends, how easy is it for us to pay lip service to the one true God? We can know all the facts about God. We can know all about his character. We can know all of the Bible stories, yet we can fail to actually experience his grace. True conversion comes through a personal experience of God's grace. And there's no better way for us to understand and for us to experience God's grace than at the cross. A simple way to think of God's grace is his unmerited favor. It's his blessing and his kindness. God's grace is his benevolence to the undeserving. 
And God's grace is first experienced in Jesus Christ. And then we continue to experience, experience it in Jesus Christ. Listen to Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Hear these words. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved. An accurate understanding of who God is, that is so important. We have to know what is factually true about God. We need to know what's factually true so we can, we can properly worship him. That's important. But we can make accurate statements about God all day long and still possess hearts of stone. We can know all about God, yet fail to experience his grace. To experience the grace of God, we must come to him with weak knees and trembling hearts, asking for his mercy. We must approach God like the, like the tax collector in Jesus' parable in Luke 18. In this story, Jesus is comparing a Pharisee with a despised tax collector. The Pharisee is proud. He's arrogant. He's trusting in himself for righteousness. But listen to how Jesus describes the tax collector. Jesus says, but the tax collector standing far off, he's talking about the temple, the tax collector standing far away from the temple. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Friends, this is the heart posture that's necessary to receive and experience the grace of God. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. I know, I am certain that everyone in this room needs to have a fresh experience with the grace of God. We all need this every single day. We need to experience God's grace. We need to rest in God's grace. He is a loving father that we can run to, a loving father that we can count on. Some of you here in this room today, for the first time in your life, you need to humble yourself like the tax collector and trust in Christ as your savior. You can know all about God. You could win in Bible trivia, but you may have never experienced God's grace. And in failing to experience God's grace, we fail to truly know him. My prayer this week, we were praying in the, the prayer service before at nine o'clock, we were praying that today might be the day where someone for the first time says, I want to experience God's grace. I want to know this Jesus that you guys are always talking about. We're praying that that would happen for someone today. For those of us who belong to Christ, who have the Holy Spirit living inside of us, God, he has given us ways of strengthening our faith and of, of growing in our, our uh, experience of his grace. And historically, these, these ways of strengthening our faith of growing and experience his grace have been referred to as the ordinary means of grace. Things like prayer, the preaching of God's word, baptism and communion. These aren't just religious things that we do in church. These seemingly ordinary things, they bless us when we receive them in faith. Or to put it in a negative way, our faith is weakened and our experience of God's grace is lessened when we, when we neglect these things. So this morning, so far, we've spent time in prayer together. 
We've looked at God's word together. And in just a minute, we're going to take communion together. And when we take communion, we're remembering all that Jesus has done for us. We're remembering all that he's doing now, and we remember that he's, he's coming back again. And while we're, we're remembering Christ, there's remembering that's taking place, we're also experiencing him. We're spiritually nourished by the Holy Spirit when we take communion together. It's a miraculous thing that the Lord does. He nourishes us in a spiritual sense when we take this meal together. And for everyone who is here, who is a Christian, whether Doxa is your home church or not, you're welcome to take communion with us. And if you're here today and you, you haven't yet trusted in Christ, this communion meal, it's not, it's not open for you, but that doesn't mean that this time is not important for you. Maybe you want to spend just a couple minutes in prayer. Perhaps you'd like to think over, you'd like to consider everything that you've heard today. This could really be an important couple of minutes for you as we take communion, as we continue to worship the Lord. I don't know if it'll be happening during communion time, but there's a prayer area at the back. If somebody's there, make your way over there and ask for prayer. Perhaps you, you need that this morning. So communion today, it's gonna to be served in, in four different areas. We'll have two areas up front and two in the back. And as you feel led, you make your way and you receive communion. So I'm gonna pray for us and then we're gonna continue in our worship together. Let's pray. God, we thank you that while you weren't required to deliver us from our sin, you could have let us perish. You could have let us die in our sin. You could, let, you could have left us as sinners. But God, we thank you that you have chosen to deliver us in Christ. God, I pray that the glory of the gospel, the wonder of the gospel, it would continually grip all of us. God, I ask personally, I ask for your forgiveness when I've, I've praised you with my lips, but the posture of my heart has not been set on you. God, I, I repent for not always having a heart that's set on you. I pray you would help me in this. I pray that you would help us as a congregation in this. That we would be a people every day whose heart is centered on you. God, may, may our words match the posture of our hearts, a heart that is fully content and fully in communion with you. God, I pray today that everyone here would experience your grace, that you and your mercy and your goodness and your kindness wouldn't just be things that we talk about, and that we know are true intellectually, but that we would experience it. God, there's been, there's been talk about the concept of dead orthodoxy. God, I pray that that would not be true of us as a body. God, that you would pull us from that if, we'd slip, if we've slipped into that. You'd rescue us from that. And the only way that's gonna happen is with a fresh experience of you and of your grace. 
an encounter with your Holy Spirit. I pray for that for all of us today. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it comes alive. God, I pray that it, your word would continue to nourish us this week. As we move into Holy Week, God, may this be a time where we really are giving extra attention and extra focus on you. I'd help this week to be a week where we come back to you if we've wandered, a week where we're strengthened, Lord, as we get ready to celebrate your resurrection on Easter Sunday. I'm so excited for that day. We celebrate it every day, but Easter is a special Sunday where we celebrate that. Lord, I, I pray for that. It'll be a, this week as we prepare for that, will just be powerful in all of our lives. So Lord, bless the rest of this service for your glory. Thank you for what you've done and what you're doing here today. And I ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.